I think I got that. Thank you. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas tide. We are still in the season of Christmas. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, there's no children's worship tonight, but Ryan uh, does have a movie that if you wanted to watch that, you could go to the nursery. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> that <laughs> I, I don't know what movie it is, Jamie. Either way, I mean, it's up, up to adults. <clears throat> yes, whether, whether you're an adult or a child, you can listen to me talk about the wise men or you can see a movie maybe with vegetables. I'm not quite sure what that's going, going to be. Let's have a word of prayer as uh, we continue to worship tonight. Lord, we thank you for this new year. We thank you for this Christmas tide season as it comes to a close. We thank you for the opportunities that come along, the covenant that we made here last week together, the covenant that we make with you tonight and every time we gather to worship to be your people, sons and daughters. We ask that you send your Holy, and Holy Spirit upon us now. Set our hearts on fire. Allow us to hear this familiar story in a way that reaches out to us and calls us into action as your followers. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Today we're going to uh, hear the story um, that did not happen on Christmas night, as sometimes we think, as the movies portray, <clears throat> and our nativities often portray, but we're going to hear the story of the wise men um, after the birth of Jesus, and it comes from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. So if you have your Bible, your Bible apps with it, I think it's going to be on the screen too. Um, if you want to follow along, I'm reading from the Common English Bible. Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the territory of Judea during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. Now when King Herod heard this, he was troubled. And everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and legal experts together and asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and carefully, uh, go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report back to me so that I too may go honor him. When they heard the king, they went and looked. The star had seen in the east, went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house. That's how we know it wasn't in the manger, right? In the stable, because they were in the house. Spoilers. No, that's not. That's the opposite of spoilers. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. They opened their treasure chests and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. It's the story of the Magi 
and their adoration of the Christ child. Now, I, I want to talk about um, <clears throat> the three kings, but I want to start uh, by, by talking a little bit about the baby. Jennifer's family, her extended family, uh, is going to be expecting uh, children soon. Uh, there's going to be more than one, uh, and it's very excited. Our, our Georgia family, uh, they are expecting uh, children, and so that's always a wonderful and exciting time, right? And a newborn baby, there's something, there's something wonderful about it. I, I worked in the hospital, as, as Jennifer did, and being able to go and just, just look at all those newborn babies. There's something wonderful about it. Many of you have been there and had them yourself, right? And, and, and held them. And, and, and when you look at a newborn child, what do you see? We often say they're a blank canvas, right? Because we don't know who they will become. We don't know what they will do. And, and although we could get into the nitty-gritty and social, economic, and political, all that kind of stuff uh, that you know, kind of crashes in in our world, but I, I think when we look at a newborn baby, we see unlimited potential. They could be anyone. They could do anything. And we see what will they accomplish? What will they do? What will be their contribution to this story called the history of everything, right? This story called the good news the kingdom of heaven. Mary and Joseph knew more about their baby than most of us know about our children, right? They were told in dreams, they were told by angels that he will be the son of God, savior of his people. But there was still more to learn. And just them and some shepherds were the only ones that knew at this point of the story. So today I want to continue the Christmas story as we're in Christmas time and talk about what the infant Jesus continued to reveal to the world. <clears throat> so the church has long celebrated different seasons. That's why traditionally in church we have uh, parapets that are different colors and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we did that because that was one way we could teach people, right? Uh, you taught people about the important things like Christmas, uh, like Easter, like Lent, uh, through different colors and symbols and candles and everything else. So we are technically still in Christmas or Christmas tide, right? Christmas tide is a season that lasts how many days? Because of the song. Okay, I I think it's the other way around, but that's how you remember there's 12 days of Christmas because that's that song. The song is actually right. There are 12 days of Christmas, December 25th to January 5th, 12 days, right? That is 12 days. And it celebrates, not a trick question, the birth of Jesus. What's Christmas celebrate? <laughs> it was not a trick question. Why do we get together every year on Christmas? Celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ. Yes, that is what Christmas tide is all about. Twelve days. Maybe it needs to be longer for some of us uh, so that we can remember. And it is immediately followed by epiphany. It's a fun word. That's a good party word. We just Maybe many of you had, went to a party this week. You can't use that. But as you go back to school and to work, you can say, epiphany. I'm having an epiphany. Right? It's a good word to use. Epiphany, and it celebrates the manifestation. Epiphany means manifestation of Christ's importance to the whole world. It's exciting. Remember, Christmas, 
Christ was born to Joseph and Mary and some goats and stuff, and, and shepherds, right? But Epiphany is about the manifestation of Christ to the entire world. Depending on your religious tradition, and I mean, you know, whether you're Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Methodist or, or Anglican, etc., um, it lasts various lengths of time. But for Methodists, uh, which we kind of hail from the Methodist tradition, uh, and we are United Methodist Church, uh, we celebrate Epiphany until, anybody know? Fat Tuesday. What's Fat Tuesday? And it's the day, and why do we call it Fat Tuesday? Because you eat as much as you can because Lent is a season of fasting, right? Not just giving up chocolate. It's supposed to be a season of fasting and reflection and preparation to what other holiday? The most important holiday of the uh, Christian year, which is not Christmas, which is confusing because we call we're Christians Christmas, Easter, because that celebrates the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ash Wednesday starts the Lenten season, so Epiphany ends on Fat Tuesday. That's not liturgically, we don't call it Fat Tuesday, but that's what they call it in New Orleans, and it's kind of fun, so that's what I'm referring to it as right now. So Epiphany, as I said, means manifestation. That's a great word, Epiphany, manifestation. And that's not a word we use today. And when I hear the word manifestation, I generally think of ghosts, right? And and nobody else? I am the only person? This is going to be a really terrible example of I'm the only person. Like ghosts manifest, right, to people? You know, they're invisible or whatever. They're ethereal technically, not to be technical. But then they appear, right? They appear. Ghostly presence. They manifest. And people can see them. And so that's, that's for me, what I think about it. <clears throat> but you could say the same was true about God, right? Until this time, in a lot of ways, God had been hidden from the world, right? Now, there was some, like, prophets, and there were angels and messengers, and there were miracles, you know, pillars of clouds and floods and, you know, plagues and stuff. That was cool. But God was really, well, unless you were, like, in a movie, it's cool. I mean, probably being there, it wasn't really cool, the plagues, I guess. I'm not sure I wasn't there. But it seems like that was kind of neat to have all that kind of stuff happen. Uh, God's presence in our world, that's kind of what I'm getting at. There were signs that God existed. There were things that God did. Um, We might say, you know, well, the, the natural world, there's so many things in the natural world which just share the beauty of God, the complexity of human beings. But in a lot of ways, God was hidden. God was this absent kind of presence. We didn't, we didn't hear from God. God didn't speak. And of course, in, in the history of Israel, this was kind of a period of time when there really wasn't a lot of prophets. We're going to talk about a prophet next week that lived during Jesus' time. But uh, there, there really wasn't a lot of prophets. There really wasn't a lot of signs of God. And so God was kind of hidden from the world. But in Jesus Christ, God became manifest. God became visible. We could see God in the person, in the child, called Jesus Christ. And it was realized all at once. Uh, and, and this is still something that we struggle with today, to realize God's presence in our lives, in our world. And so if you don't get epiphany as a Christian, it's going to be really hard to explain it to someone who's not a Christian what this whole thing is about. Epiphany is important. That's why we celebrate it for so long, longer than Christmas, because we need to continue to do the work of showing people that God is present, manifest in our world. 
So the Christmas story reveals Christ's identity, Son of God, Savior, Emmanuel, King of Kings, etc., to Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds. Now, this was astonishing because none of those people were important. Now, they were important, but in the grand scheme of things, they weren't kings, they weren't queens, they weren't nobility, they weren't, you know, wealthy. They were just the least of these. I mean, quite literally, shepherds were the least of these. I mean, maybe lepers were, not leopards. I don't know if they lived in that area. Leopards with the skin disease, they were less than shepherds, but not much on the scale of things. And Mary and Joseph were just these two poor people, very righteous and very, very, you know, very passionate and very willing to do God's will. But they were still not the greatest of Israel. And they were Jewish. Let's, let's just say that. So they were members of the house of Israel, God's chosen people all through the Old Testament. That's the story we read. Now, the Jewish people were always called to be a light to all nations, to share by living a certain way, by acting a certain way, by ha- having a kind of moral code and lifestyle that was different. They were supposed to show other people what it meant to be God's people. They were to be a light to all nations. And, and, and if we go you know, into Christ's message, by loving others right, and putting other people beyond uh, your own needs, they were supposed to show that the rest of the world that this is what it means to be God's people. Now, they struggled with that just as we struggle with that. And relationships with everyone else and the Jewish people were not always very good. They had a very bad history of relationships with Gentiles, i.e. everyone else, because other people kept occupying them, right? Greeks and Romans and Assyrians and Babylonians and you know, read Abraham and Sarah's story, all kinds of crazy things happening. You know, let's not talk about Egypt and the whole slavery thing. They did not have a good relationship with other people, even though they were to be a light to all nations. Now, Epiphany then completes the story. As Christ was manifest, God was manifest to the Jewish people, Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds, particularly in our story. The story of the Magi then bridges to the Gentiles, to everyone else. Because the Magi were not from around these parts, right? They were from a distant country or countries. And they were not Jews. They were Gentiles. Christ came to save not a few people, right? Not just a group of chosen people, not just the house of Israel. Christ came to save all people. In a lot of ways, the kings, the Magi, the wise men, whatever you want to call them, We'll talk about that here in a second. They show up to represent all of us, the rest of the world. So let's talk about the three kings a little bit. Uh, There's been a lot of confusion over um, who these guys were. And I won't say which child, um, but one of the children was concerned last week because they thought the wise men looked like girls, which shouldn't be a problem, right? I mean, they could be. Um, But they're very angelic looking in that particular nativity scene. So I could see the confusion about that. But so we've had a lot of confusion about how many there were, about who they were, where they came from, and all that kind of stuff. Now, we can't answer um, how many there were. Uh, We can't answer, you know, who particularly they were. But we can talk about a little bit about who they were. Um, There may have been three of them. There may have been 3,000. Probably not. They wouldn't have all fit in the house. Um, so there was probably a few of them. We don't know exactly how many. There may have been one or two. The ancient tradition named 12 of them. 
you know, the, the ancient tradition of the church was there was 12 wise men, one for each day of there we go, right, now we're learning something, each one for each day of Christmas tide. Uh, the tradition most of us know in our nativities, uh, at, because if we had 12, our nativities would be very expensive, um, is that there was three, and we've even named them. Anybody know their names? Okay, yeah. In Spanish. Well, I'll hear them in Spanish. Yeah, and very similar in English, right? Yeah. Okay, well, now we know them in Spanish, and we can say that. Uh, yeah, Casper, Malachor, and Balthazar uh, in, in English. Uh, thank you, Vicky, for that. Uh, and, and we do that, why? Because there was three gifts. So we, we make three wise men, three gifts. Um, but as we read in our story, it really doesn't specify, and it's not particularly important. You can believe there were three or 600. It doesn't really matter because uh, it doesn't change the impact of the story. What we can answer is who they were, at least generalizations about who they were. Um, you may be familiar with the terms I've already said, the wise men, right? Or, as we're going to sing, the kings, three kings, we three kings. And you're, that's why you're familiar with that, because of the carol, we three kings. But the Greek word translates best to magi, which comes from a Persian word. I know you all love when I talk about ancient languages, right? Penny does. She loves it. So the Greek word magi, that comes from a, a Persian word describing priests of the Zoroastrian religion. And I won't get into great detail, but I do love the Zoroastrian religion and tradition. Um, these particular priests were known throughout the world to be wise and scholarly, kings among men, you might say. Uh, in particular, um, they were philosophers, scientists, and had a particular fascination with what uh, in that era science do you think? Yes, astrology, not astronomy. Uh, because in that day, astrology, the study of the stars and what the stars meant in terms of the destiny of the world, right? That was an, a real science. We kind of think it's ridiculous because we put it in, well, we don't really have newspapers anymore, but if we had newspapers, then you would have it in your, you know, what's your sign and all that kind of stuff. That's astrology too. Um, but that is the study, right, of seeking knowledge and truth from the stars. Now, our English word, Magic comes from this very word, this Persian word um, that the Greeks translated as magi. And uh, from this tradition, others thought that they were involved in the occult and sorcery. And so they, there was something magic about them. But of course, if you know Zoroastrian religion like I do, you know that the Zoroastrians hated sorcery and magic of any kind and were appalled by it because they were philosophers and scientists. I, that's just interest. That's something you can throw out at your next party. Um, so when you're talking about the wise men, as I know you often do. Um, so the Magi were renowned scholars, and above all else, they were truth seekers. And it was the star that led them to Bethlehem. And we could talk about a whole, you know, maybe we can do a podcast of this maybe sometime. But we can talk about a whole conversation about how God used astrology, right? Which we think is ridiculous, most of us. If you don't, no, I'm, I'm sorry that I just offended you. Um, but you might not, you might be smarter than me because God used astrology to reveal this truth about Jesus Christ to these Zoroastrian priests, these magi, these wise men. So that's a whole other conversation about what the importance of astrology is. 
Now, that brings us to the gifts, and the gifts are really what's most important, although it's nice to have a little bit of background about who these guys were, but that, or ladies, who knows, um, you know, let's just hope that maybe one of them was a female um, in, in part of that tradition. But that brings us to the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Nice gifts, really nice gifts, and certainly helpful gifts, as Mary and Joseph would soon have to flee to Egypt because King Herod was not coming to adore their son, right? He was coming to murder all of the two-year-olds and younger in Bethlehem, and he would do that, and that was not a good day. And so they were warned, of course, to leave, and so they fled to Egypt as refugees. And I won't go into detail maybe about that, but that's something to think about, Jesus Christ, the refugee. So we have these three wonderful gifts. But if we just take them at face, and they were valuable, if we take them at face value, I think we lose much of the significance. And I, and I apologize, I have frankincense and myrrh, uh, and I did not bring it tonight, so maybe I'll bring it next week. I forgot to grab that on our way here. Um, so the first gift is gold. Now, this is the one we are most familiar with, because gold, most of us are wearing it, adorned with it, if you will, to some respect, right? Um, and, and many of us have it maybe at our homes, buried in our yards, however you, uh, you know, prepare for the coming uh, economic downturn or, or however you feel about that. But gold is still very valuable, correct? Right? Gold is a precious metal. It is something that is valuable. I mean, uh, e- even the simplest, you know, my, my wedding ring, uh, fairly valuable, just a gold band. If you have large quantities of gold, of course, very, very valuable. So if you think in the ancient world, gold was also very valuable. And we hadn't unlocked all of the mines in the world and all of the gold in the world and found ways to synthesize it and all that kind of stuff. So it was even more precious. Gold and silver were exceptionally precious. And so those who were most important, like kings, would adorn themselves and their palaces and their temples, and everything with this metal called gold. That's why they would have crowns made of gold and jewels, palaces wall to wall. They said the palace of Solomon, gold everywhere, and silver and bronze, precious metals. If you've ever been to the Field Museum, go look at some of the wonderful things from ancient Egypt, tombs and sarcophagus, death masks, all kinds of uh, scepters and stuff, just adorned with gold. Priceless, priceless things. Gold was a gift for a king, and this gift revealed something, that Jesus Christ was king. King of the Jews, king of the Gentiles, king of the universe. That's important. He didn't come just to be king of the Jews. He came to be king of the Gentiles. He came to be king of everyone forever. Christ manifest as king, that gift revealed to us. Now, the other two gifts may be a little bit more nuanced as we don't go around trading frankincense. I mean, you can go buy it. Uh, Frankincense and myrrh, most of us probably have never even seen it. How many people have seen frankincense and myrrh? Like I said, I own some, so of course I've seen it, but probably many of you don't have a lot of frankincense and myrrh on hand. It's not something we use. Many other countries do. But frankincense, as the name implies, is what? A type of incense. Yes, incense is actually, uh, you can be made into an oil, but it, it's uh, uh, a little bit more uh, 
uh, structure than that. Uh, it's burned and it smells nice, right? Yeah, that's what incense is. You burn it and it smells nice. That's what frankincense was. In particular, Jewish tradition, and that's where this becomes important, it was used in religious ceremonies by the priests. Today, in a lot of Roman Catholic churches, you know, when they're walking around with the smelly thing, yeah, they're burning frankincense or some other type of incense, but often in traditional Roman Catholic and traditional Greek Orthodox churches, they are burning frankincense. It has a pleasant smell to it, and it was used in a lot of priestly rituals. This gift revealed that Jesus Christ was a priest. A priest does what? Connects people to God. That's what the priest did. That's in the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, technically, that's I am a priest, but uh, we don't talk about it a lot. Uh, but, you know, in the ancient days, the Jewish people, the priest was who you went to to get connected to God. The priest is where you went to the temple, saw the priest, made the sacrifice, the priest said a few things, and you get connected to God. If you were a Roman Catholic, you go to the priest, you take confessional, the priest says, okay, do these things, you're connected to God. We don't believe that you need a priest to connect you to God Almighty because Jesus Christ is the priest of all priests, the great high priest. This gift revealed that Jesus Christ was the perfect priest, the one who connects all people, Jews and Gentiles, to God. Perfectly. Forever. So we have King of Kings, we have the great high priest, and finally we have the gift of myrrh. Now, myrrh is actually tree resin. You're familiar with tree resin. It gets the sap of the tree, hardens, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and it was used for several purposes. You could use it as incense. You could use it as a perfume or oil. It does smell nice. Um, but, but when it was made into an oil, you know what it was most often used for? Embalming, right? The ancient Egyptians used it very much in their embalming and still pretty effective as an embalming fluid. Uh, if you've ever seen any mummies, which I had to explain to my son what a mummy was this week. I'm not really sure how it came up, um, but it came up and we had to talk about that. Um, so that was fun. I assured him that very rarely do they come to life and haunt the living. So <clears throat> very rarely in my experience does that happen. Sometimes. Um, I, don't quote me on that. Um, but uh, as an embalming fluid, the Jewish rituals would use it for anointing, of course, and then for the death rituals, they would use it, a pounds of it, sometimes hundreds of pounds of it, to anoint, to wrap, and to embalm the dead. As Christ hang, hung excuse me, on the cross, it was a mixture of wine and myrrh that was offered to him on the hyssop branch. This gift foreshadowed what would come kind of a morbid gift, isn't it, right? It would foreshadow Christ's death, that he would die, and maybe that he would die for a reason. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts for a king, for a high priest, and for one who would die for us all. I don't want to end there, because I think this brings up some questions that we can take away with us. The Magi honored Christ with valuable, meaningful gifts. They came not to ask for favors. They didn't come to bribe him, right? They didn't come to, you know, well, I'm going to give you gold. And when you grow up, you know, put a good word in with the, you know, big guy, right? 
That's not why they came, but they came to adore him. Adoration is the act of honoring someone without wanting anything in return. I wish as Christians we came in adoration every time we stepped before God, every time we came together in worship, every time we fell on our knees and prayed, every time we opened the scripture, every time we went out into the world to go eat, right? Just to do something. I wish we came in in that honoring, respecting adoration that these magi came to honor Christ with. But often we come with selfish agendas. And even today in our story, you may have missed it, there were others who met Christ with very different reactions. Not adoration like the Magi, not gifts, not blessings. Now remember that Israel, or Judah, had, been, had not been its own kingdom for several years. King David and King Solomon, we talked about this, ruled for decades and their children messed everything up. Uh, Solomon's child and then other children uh, screwed everything up and it would divide into north and south, Israel and Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, would just be wiped out by the Assyrians. The Babylonians would come and you know, wipe out the southern kingdom, bring them to exile, then they would come back. Uh, they would rebuild Jerusalem, build the wall, rebuild the temple. Uh, yay, and then the Greeks came in and oh, and then the Maccabees, you know, Hanukkah, and that happened, and yay. And then the Romans came in, and boo. And that's pretty much where we were at the story, right? <clears throat> it's not a good, I'm just catching you up. We've talked about it a lot, so I'm not going to go into great detail about it. Um, you can, you know, listen to some other sermons about it, or we can talk about that more later. Um, uh, so they, they, you know, they were, they were occupied uh, against this. But when the Roman Empire, because the Romans were smarter uh, than a lot of these other folks, and the Romans conquered all kinds of space, I mean, a lot of the known world at that time, a lot of, uh, you know, what we would call Europe and Asia Minor and all that kind of stuff, Northern Africa, uh, they conquered so much space. And they knew that it was a smart thing to do to let native people, you know, practice their own religion. And hey, well, they, they have their own king, so let's just give them a king and, you know, we'll appoint that guy. But, you know, he'll answer to us, but he'll be their guy. And so they can, you know, he can have some power and a palace and all that kind of stuff. The Romans knew that that was smart. So there was Caesar Augustus, right, who was the, you know, ruler of the Roman Empire at the time. Uh, But then there was this appointed king, Herod, and he was king of the Jews. Now, it was almost a mockery, right, of the kingdom of Israel because he didn't have any real power. He didn't have any real authority. And if you hear stories about him and his son, Uh, they were a little messed up. They had some issues. But he still had this title and he still had this palace and he he still had some power. And so when this group of magi came and said, where's the king of the Jews? We, We know the star has told us he's been born around these parts. Can we go and see him? Herod was not real happy about the situation. Herod was not pleased because this new king of the Jews threatened his kingdom, his title, his kingship. So he responded with fear, anger, hatred, and so much so, as I already said, he would have every newborn and toddler killed in Bethlehem. Anyone who was two years or younger killed. He wanted that threat dealt with swiftly. But there's another group that is easy to miss in this story. And I think this is an important group for us because I think sometimes this is how we respond to Christ. The other group that's easy to miss are the priests and the scribes. 
Because remember, Herod calls the priests and the scribes were the religious folk, right? Uh, the really religious folk, the good, the good faithful religious folk. Uh, and, and so he calls them and says, where's this kid going to be born? And they said, well, obviously Bethlehem, because we've read all the books. We know where this is going to happen. Right? It happened before, it's going to happen again. Bethlehem, that's where David came from, all that kind of stuff. But whatever happened to them, right? What did they do? They had heard from the Magi. I, I mean, just look at this nativity set, this beautiful nativity set. Do you see any priests or scribes? Right? It, it, I mean, I have like 40 nativity sets at home. Not one of them has a priest or a scribe. Any of your nativity sets? Any of your movies or, you know, Veggie Tales versions of the story? And there's no priests or scribes. They heard the Magi say, we've seen a star and we believe the newborn king of the Jews has been born. We believe that there is a new king born to you. Where is he? Now, they may have thought the Magi were crazy, right? They may have thought they were just some crazy sorcerers from the east. You know, you know, word gets around. Uh, but even if there was a chance, even if there was a chance, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, I, I love the Roman Catholic Church, uh, great history and, and a lot of good things about it. You know, every time there's a miracle in our world, you know, somebody says, I've seen the face of Jesus on a Dorito. They send somebody to go investigate it. Did you know that? You know, because maybe there will really be the face of Jesus on a Dorito. I mean, most of the time it's not, but, you know, every time, you know, some statue of Mary weeps, they go and they have to look at it. I'm not making that up. There are people that do that. They're actually exorcists too in the Roman Catholic Church. But, uh, you know, they, they go and they check out all of these, you know, supposed miracles. And it's really important for the Roman Catholics because to be a saint, you have to have a miracle attributed to you. So it's really important. So they go check it out. Why didn't any of the priests or scribes, maybe the whole Sanhedrin knew, right? All of those people, maybe even more than the Sanhedrin, maybe they knew that these men had come all the way, all the way from wherever they hailed from, Asia Minor, at least maybe far east. And they had seen a star and they thought there was a baby there and not one of them went to Bethlehem to check it out. Not one of them went to Bethlehem to see, well, I got to see this kid. Or I got to see if these guys are just crazy. You know, they have all kinds of weird stuff over there, right? Not one of them. Maybe if the Messiah had been born, maybe if somebody said, you know, I think I, Jesus came back and I saw him in Toledo, maybe you'd make the trip over to Ohio just to see for yourself. And it's not a pleasant time to go to Toledo. Maybe you'd Skype somebody who lived there. I don't know, but you might check it out. Not one of them went. They met Christ with indifference. So I want to leave you with a couple questions for Epiphany, which is a long season, so you have plenty of time to think about it, right? Till Fat Tuesday, till Ash Wednesday. How will you meet Christ, this Epiphany? How will you meet Christ? Now, I doubt anyone here is going to say, well, I'm going to meet Christ like King Herod with anger and fear, and I'm going to kill babies. Nobody's going to say that. But remember, every time you treat a brother or sister like garbage, you're treating Christ like garbage. 
Every time you fear-monger on the internet, you are fear-mongering in the name of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian. Every time you respond with anger, you are responding to Christ with anger. So there's maybe a little bit more King Herod in us than we'd like to admit. Who or what are you afraid of? Who are you angry at? Who do you hate? Who have you pushed away from Christ because of your actions? Something to think about. Sadly, many and more of us meet Christ like the priests and the scribes. We know Christ is there, right? We may understand He is the Messiah, but we act indifferently. We act the same as we did yesterday, right? We made New Year's resolutions. Some of you probably did, right? And then February, they're gone. You're eating bacon and drinking who knows what. Haven't been to the gym in a few weeks, right? You know the power of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, if you believe that you've experienced the new life he has to offer, you know that, and yet sometimes we act indefinitely. We claim to follow Christ, but we ignore the needs of others. Or will you meet Jesus Christ like Mary and Joseph did? Like the shepherds did? Like the Magi did? Will you meet Christ with adoration? Will you offer yourself as Mary and Joseph? Did they offer themselves to an amazing task? They gave up their life, their family, their future to raise this child. Will you offer your family as they did? Will you offer your vocation and livelihood like the shepherds did? Will you offer what you value most like the Magi did? Will you go on a trip across the world like they did? Some of us are called to do that. This last question I think is important, especially when, as we're talking about Christ manifesting in our world. Who is Christ in our world? Jesus would ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? Now, Epiphany is a season of acknowledging who Christ is. Who you say Christ is determines a lot about your faith, determines a lot about your Christian walk. It determines about who you are as a Christian. And ultimately, whether you meet Christ with adoration or something else. So those are the two questions I want to lay. I'll repeat this Epiphany season. Who do you say Christ is and how will you meet him? This epiphany. Amen. Let us respond to that with an affirmation of who Christ is uh, in the traditional creed called the Apostles' Creed. This is the ecumenical version, if that matters to you. That just means this is the version most churches use. <clears throat> and let us read this, to the, uh, read this together, affirmation of what we believe about our faith. Let us read together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Anybody, because you couldn't hear living in the dead, say quick in the dead? I love that language. Come again to judge the quick in the dead. It's a good movie, too. 
with Sharon Stone and Leonardo DiCaprio. If you're looking for something to watch this new year. It may not be. It may be a terrible movie. It's been a long time since I saw it. But I, in my head, when I was like 12, I thought it was really cool. So that doesn't, that's not a really good uh, assertion of what a movie would be. Let us uh, now be in prayer for others. I remind you that uh, during uh, communion, during our song, uh, feel free to uh, fill out a blue prayer card over there, uh, light a candle in honor or memory of someone. Um, and uh, as we do today, I will lift up um, several short phrases. After those phrases, I will say on the screen, Lord, in your mercy, and you will respond. Uh, and then I will open it up to uh, anyone we'd like to pray for and just say their name, and then uh, I will say, Lord, in your mercy, you will say here in prayer. So let us pray together uh, for those of us who are here, uh, for those who are not here, who cannot be here. So let us pray. Lord, once again, we thank you for the gifts you bring us, and we just ask that you help us offer you whatever we can, that we follow you where you lead, that we share your goodness and love wherever we go, that we just shed off these things that keep us from sharing your life with others we meet. Lord, we pray for the people of new life. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, we pray for those who suffer and those in trouble. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, we pray for the concerns of our community. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, we pray for the world, its people, and its leaders. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, we pray for the church, its leadership, its members, and its mission. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, we also pray for the communion of saints and we pray for any concerns that are on our hearts and let us lift them up now. Lord, in your mercy. 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 Lord, we lift up these names and so many others that are on our hearts. We just ask that you help us reach out to all those we can. Share your grace and compassion with all of those we can. Help us be your hands and feet. Help us be your shoulder to cry on, your affirmation, your encouragement in times of trouble. We pray these holy things in your name. Amen.